Listener Production. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. It felt like everything was closing in and it was it was going to happen any second. I was either going to die or have to use my firearm. This week, I've invited a former detective constable who worked on a Tasmanian task force that on the face of it doesn't seem to be investigating something all that gripping. But my goodness, did the investigation take an unexpected turn. Yvette Erskine was involved in investigating the illegal Australian abalone market. Abalone is a highly prized shellfish delicacy with high international demand but low supply. And as expected, where demand is high and supply is low, black markets spring up. But what wasn't expected was the amount of political corruption and gandland activity she would unearth during her investigation. This is one highlight of Yvette's long and varied career. But to begin, let's go back to Yvette's early days as a junior officer stationed at Devonport, where she was often the only female cop on duty. Goodness, this is a case, um, Yvette, that you're involved in, involving a uh, the the what could honestly be called the, the, the systematic sexual assault committed against a young teenage girl by a male carer. Uh, this was committed over a long period of time, allegedly. Um, the young girl had severe both intellectual and physical impairments uh, to the point where the interview uh, leading to the statement that you took was taken over a three-day period. This is a very confronting job, confronting set of circumstances. Yvette, can you can you just talk to us a little bit about that case you know, the unique nature of it and, and, and your involvement in that in that case. When I think back to that one, I think probably that sort of highlights every single frustration that I had with perhaps how sexual assaults were dealt with back in the day and going through the justice system. And um, so I was at the time, I, I was on secondment to the CIB. And so I was basically the dog's body. So you know how it is. You get all the jobs that nobody else wants. (laughs) And plus, you know, back in the day being female, um, it was like, okay, sexual assault. Can we have a woman to take a statement? Anyway, I was called down to the front office to take a statement from a young lady who'd come in with her carer. And um, she was not extremely verbal. Um, She had significant intellectual and physical disabilities, but her carer was lovely and we had a little chat and it turned out that um, the girl had made an allegation that the former carer, um, who was a male, had been sexually assaulting her over a number of years, I believe. So she wanted to go ahead 
with making a statement and the three of us talked it through and I explained what was going to happen. And she seemed on board with that. And I took her upstairs and the carer was there and she worked with us. And look, it was quite painstaking. You know, this was even uh, back in the day before, you know, we'd do it on a computer. So it was a handwritten statement. Um, And you want to get these things right because you know how they're going to be uh, treated in a court environment. And and so I, there was there was something about her. She was very special and I wanted to uh, find her some justice. Anyway, it was really, really hard. So we uh, we talked it all through first and, and we spent basically a few hours that first day. And of course she got tired um, and she wasn't able to put things into words very well. And also, obviously, you're hamstrung by not uh, being allowed to put words into her mouth. So you you can't suggest what might have happened to help her out. So there's this whole very careful dance, knowing what was going to happen to that statement at the end of it. Um, Anyway, day one, I had a pretty good idea of what had happened to her. She was tired. I sent her home. There was no point doing any more on it. Um, She came back in the next day and we started putting pen to paper and it was really distressing for her. We had lots of breaks. There was lots of tea. There was lots of coffee. There was, um, you know, and her carer was there with her all the time, that female carer. Um, so we got about half a statement done. I said, you, you know, we're going really well. It's really good. Come back. We'll finish it off tomorrow. There's no point putting you under this immense amount of pressure. So she did. And look, I was running this by the bosses the whole time going, this is, this is hard. She can't put words together a lot of the time. And I don't want to be suggesting things to her, but I do understand what's happened. Is there a better way of doing it? But you know what? There wasn't. There wasn't a better legal way of doing it. We could have maybe used videotapes, but then you're coming up against, you know, a whole different set of problems, you know, videoing the the victim. So she came back for a third day and we worked and we worked and we went back and forth and she was distressed and there were tears. But in the end, we'd created a statement, which I was happy with, which outlined what had been happening. Um, He'd basically been raping her for like three years, I think. And because he was her sole carer, there was, yeah, he was allowed to be there. It was all hunky-dory and no one asked any questions. So at the end of this, I put the file together and being the dog's body, I wasn't actually allowed at that point in time to go and pick him up and interview him. That went on to someone else. Um, But at that stage, I was led to believe that everything was fine. The statement was as good as we could get it. He was interviewed. He, of course, um, didn't make any admissions. The file went to the DPP. The DPP were reasonably happy with it, happy enough to put it forward. Um, And so it went to committal And um, I got a call later that day because I was never one to go to court and listen to these things. Um, I got a call that said, no, the magistrate had looked at it, um, had deemed her to be completely incapable of giving evidence and therefore dismissed the case within like three minutes. The frustration that you must have felt there. And just just to uh, backtrack, Yvette, the DPP being the Department of Public Prosecutions, mm. and this is the process where police uh, detectives and, and what have you put these files together on a high-level case like this, they go across to the DPP and it is their decision as to whether they believe there's sufficient evidence 
to to get yes. a conviction. Um, and then there's one more step before it goes to trial. Now, mm-hmm. it was where the police via the DPP, you present your case in court, don't you? Mm. And the bar that you have to sort of get over there is is a magistrate listening to the evidence and reasonable to assume that a jury could make a finding in this case based on some of these key pieces of evidence. Yeah. And I suppose the way of looking at that was that the magistrate saw her statement, uh, realised what the problems were and did not think that she was fit to take the stand and verbally give her evidence. Mm. So basically her statement was ruled out and thrown out. Yeah, goodness me. So you spend three days with a person uh, and the statement and you've highlighted the pain of for this young girl of giving that information and and then within within five minutes yep. it's thrown out Decision dismissed made. um yep. no, you know, no further action can be taken it can't be revisited it's it's done and dusted and mm. false reporting a sexual crime it is the lowest falsely reported crime category and um when you're in the job for long enough to be sitting and taking those interviews you sit with somebody i mean that's three days interviewing a um a complainant you know sitting there whether this mm. is a true recollection of a, of a real life event or if it's some sort of a fabricated made mm. up story. Uh, I, I mean, you cannot sit in front of somebody for three days and have the wool pulled over your eyes, can you? It just doesn't happen. No, it doesn't happen, Brent. And let's face it, who would want to go ahead with that? <laughs> you know, that, and that's something that you would outline right at the start. And we did, you'd outline the process and say, you know, it's mm. hard, but absolutely, we're here to support you. A hundred percent, but you will need to do this, 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 this and this, and it will go to court and you will need to give evidence and we explain the process. Like I can even, in 1995 when I started, I was my disillusion with um, sexual assaults in the justice system. I'll always remember a case I had to sit in on. As a junior constable, I sat in the courtroom and listened to this and it was a rape trial and um, the complainant was giving her evidence and the defence spent, oh, my God, at least half an hour grilling her. This this girl, she's telling her story about how she's in the back alley behind a nightclub and she was being raped. And they focused in on a question. Were your jeans above mm. your knee or below your knee at mm. the time mm. of you know, why you're being raped. And they absolutely gave it to her and Mm. they broke her down in tears. And well, if you don't know, well, I put it to Mm. you that you weren't being raped. You don't Mm. know anything Mm. about what Mm. was going on. And I just sat there and went, what? Mm. No. (laughs) You know, how on earth can you? I I don't know. I'm sorry, your worship. I can't remember where my jeans exactly were at that point in time. There was a little bit going on. I'm sorry. but. Oh yeah, I was quite horrified by that, and and um and that's the thing you want to make sure that your complainant knows is as firm on those details as they possibly can be. That case involving that young girl that was dismissed at committal, um, Yvette, how did you walk away from that? How did you reconcile that for yourself? Hmm, I don't know if I ever did. <laughs> Maybe that's the first one that sprang to mind. Um. Mm. I think probably part of my whole problem with policing was uh, the system and the fact that you could do your very best job, Uh, you could put together the most amazing file under the sun, you could have every piece of evidence that you think is correct, you could have it all there, your ducks are lined up, and Mm. 
there's one thing, there's one, you know, the warrant was signed on the wrong side. You can lose everything on a technicality. And look, there are people, there are coppers who, and you probably know them, who can put together the best file, put it before a court and walk away happy that they've done their job. Mm. That was never me. I couldn't, I wrestled with stuff. I took it so deeply um, and I was so empathetic and I was probably too much for my own good, I think. And I, I, I really felt constantly let down by those sorts of cases that I couldn't, you know, I joined up to make a difference, but I'm, I'm mm. hoping that that was a time in the past. Um, we are talking 20 years ago. So I'm really hoping that things have changed um, since then and that that the world has become a little bit more open to listening to complainants in relation to those things and that the, the whole system has become um, a little more forgiving. Um, so I would never suggest that you don't report these things. Um, uh, you know, I talk about my own grumpy experiences and they, they are 20 years ago. Um, but I would always hope, and particularly having a daughter now, that those sorts of things are really important, that you, you do go and seek that help and you talk to the right person and um, you do get your, your story out there. Um, so I would never want to discourage anyone from doing that. Let's go to 2001. Uh, November 2001, you've made your way back to the Tasmanian Police Academy. You're undertaking a CIB, which is a crime investigation branch, a CIB course, and you get approached by a detective inspector, David Plumpton. Wonderful, wonderful human being. Absolutely. He taps you on the shoulder and asks if you would be interested working in a covert task force, Task Force Oakham in Hobart. And this is all linked to abalone poaching. Uh, There is millions of dollars being thrown at this government funding. It's a multi jurisdictional operation. Can you discuss your involvement in this operation and how it sort of compared to general policing? Sure, Brent. Um, yes, when when Detective Inspector Plumpton pulled me out of class that day, um, he took me took me out the back down near the car park and said, We've worked together. I um I'm on this thing down in Hobart. The government's putting lots of money into it. I need another Detective, I need a detective constable. Are you interested in moving down and working? It's every every young CIB dream to to get the big covert task force. And so I was immediately thinking, you know, drugs, gangs, gun running. Oh, everything was running through my head. And I said, oh, oh what's it all about? And he said, well, it's fish. <laughs> <laughs> I went, what? <laughs> fish? Okay, but, you know, you're you. I trust you. I respect you. I'm on board. Put, sign me up. I had nothing better to do at that stage in life. So um, certainly fish it was. I moved down to Hobart. So what had been going on, Tassie was one of three major places around the world. So it's Tassie, South Africa, and around the coast of California, which had the best um, abalone in the world, the tastiest, because Tassie being very clean and green, of course. So we had very good abalone stocks, but the industry was very heavily regulated by the government. Um, You could become an abalone diver, but you would pay millions of dollars 
for your license to do that. But down the track, you could also make millions of dollars by selling that. So it was big business. It was big industry. And what had been happening over many years was that a lot of people had been poaching and stealing the government's resources and the government was not happy. So said, uh, here, Tasmania Police, we would like you to establish a task force. We will give you all the resources, all the money you need. Make it stop. Um, and I went to work in the Hobart Police Station. We were on the in the basement at that stage, setting up our task force. We had a couple of DIs, a couple of DSs, and um, a couple of constables like myself to do the groundwork. Yeah, so um, nobody knew why we were there, and we were sworn to secrecy. But we went about our work for the next couple of years, and um, basically, we were chasing about four different groups of individuals who were moving the abalone from even legitimate seafood processing industries in the southern end of the state and selling it up through Victoria and up through Queensland and into on into Southeast Asia. Um, what these gentlemen did was instead of buying their legal abalone from the certified divers, they were getting all this illegal abalone coming through the back door from poachers and so mixing it in and so the whole it looked like a nice shop front and it was all you know moving along nicely and was all very well regulated but uh, at the back end it was based on uh, a whole bunch of thieves stealing abalone so you're not really talking fish we're talking I think in the end we put a figure on it we put like 21 ton of abalone worth Oh, millions and millions and millions of dollars. The beauty, I think, of this case, Brent, was that uh, rather than normal CRB work where you had those like monthly quotas where you had to tie up jobs and do them quickly and get results and maybe not to the best of your ability and it was always difficult to get hold of the resources, the techs, the physical surveillance, those things that you really needed, Oakham had everything thrown at it. And it was an amazing experience to be able to investigate and investigate well and ask for something and to have it handed to you. Um, so we worked in conjunction with the marine unit and we worked really closely. We had a tech unit, uh, technical support, and we had physical surveillance. So that enabled us to actually work with informants within the industry and to gather all of that evidence that we needed. And we gathered that slowly over time and we built up these huge files. So by the time we came to interview the key individuals, they had nowhere to go. We had everything. We had photos of them. You know, we had the transcripts. Here, let me play this phone call where you said that. Oh, you you didn't say that? Okay, listen to this, you know. Um, so it was such an unusual situation. And even better than that, I think um, we'd worked with the National Crime Authority in the end. And um, so we would we would compile these files, pass them on to the NCA, the NCA would issue a subpoena for these individuals to come into a covert hearing. And of course, we're in the background. And when you get your subpoena, part of that is that you're not to tell anyone you have that summons, you're not to discuss it, you know. And so of course, I was straight on the phone, oh, I've got this, I've got to go and talk to so-and-so, which is sitting there, yeah, <laughs> okay, there's another, you know, there's another thing you've breached, you know. So they went into the COVID hearings, they told all their lies, the NCA said, thank you very much, and passed it back to us. And um, then we dismantled those lies. 
If my research is correct, I think you ended up charging locking up 17 offenders, four different syndicates, you know, in Tasmania, Victoria, Queensland, and laying of 169 charges. Does that sound about right? Mm, that's about right, Brent. Yeah, so a lot of them related to charges under the um, Living Marine Resources Management Act um, for the uh, the poaching and the possession. Um, and it wasn't only the abalone, of course, when you're listening to their calls on a daily basis, you start to go down different rabbit holes. There were drugs involved. There was identity fraud. I think we uncovered... Um, like a syndicate doing false licences and things like that. So it actually led to a whole stack of different charges, which we we tried not to focus on. But at the end, I think the last six months or so, we went back and we cleaned up a lot of those smaller things and we charged some individuals drug running and what have you not through Tassie. You're often dealing with the fringes of, of organised crime there and they, they've got their fingers in a few different pies and you uncovered links to the Chinese triads, drug trafficking, even I think police corruption along the way. So it was a mm. it was a fairly broad net uh, that you started pulling things in after a two-year operation. It wasn't. And can I actually say um, the police corruption was what kicked it all off, Brent. Um, mm. Oakham, it refers to a fibrous material that you tar and you use to plug holes in a timber boat, like an old-fashioned timber boat where the palings come together. So I think the use of the word oakum was that we knew there was a leak in the marine division itself. Right. So it started off, let's plug that leak to start with and then see where we go. And we did uh, end up finding out who that leak was and there was, I think he resigned now, Yvette, let's fast forward to late 2004. Um, you've left the task force open back in uniform, I think. Is that right? Back up in Devonport? Are you back in uniform? That's right, Brent. I was, yeah. yeah. There were no CIB jobs going, but I, I wanted to move back up to the northwest coast. So back to uniform it was. So back into uniform. Um, late night call to a remote area, Baker's Beach, 40 minutes west of Devonport, uh, just to set the scene here, you're working with another officer with you know, similar service, you, you, you know, nine to 10 years each. So, you, you know, 20 years combined service. You, you're hardly rookies. You're in, a, you're in a general duties car. A call comes through along the lines of, you know, an older couple from Baker's Beach just wanted to see police, bit of an issue with their son. Jobs like this, when you're working general duties, you've attended a thousand of these. Mm-hmm. Now, can you walk us through... Yvette, like what happened when you arrived at the house and how the situation, to put it mildly, was just a little bit different to how dispatch had um, had relayed it to you? So it was coming down a long uh, dirt gravel driveway down to a property at the bottom of the hill, um, the hill covered in bushland and what have you not. We parked the police car out the front of the house, um, knocked on the door, nice older couple with a dog under their arm asked us to come in. So we went in, said, how are you going? What's what's going on tonight? What seems to be the problem? Their um, 21-year-old son, who was a diagnosed schizophrenic, um, had been off his meds. He'd smashed up the house. He'd threatened to kill them. And he had since stomped off into the bushland. Um, and he was in possession of some rather large knives and a high-powered crossbow and a bunch of arrows. 
So <laughs> I went, right, okay, that sort of changes things. Okay, everybody inside, shut the door. Um, it was a split second decision and I go over this a million times and go, you know what, should have just jumped in the car and run, but we didn't, okay. We were firmly inside of the house, so you do what you do. Um, I, we asked some more questions. How had he threatened them? What was he going to do? You know, we're trying to get to the bottom of his, um, his, uh, mental health at that point in time, I suppose. And, and what, from what they could tell us, we knew it was serious. So we immediately called for backup, but the radios, of course, weren't working that far out, um, onto the house brick of a, of a mobile phone back in the day. And, um, we called for immediate backup. And so we then proceeded to lock up the house as best we could. We pulled down all the curtains, the blinds around us, because it was quite, um, an open house, obviously looking down even further onto bushland. And I thought, right, if he's out there, I don't want to be a sitting duck. So we, we locked everything up, turned it off, turned off the lights, um, got the couple and the, the dog that wouldn't stop barking. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was just as if, as if it wasn't stressful enough. <laughs> um, so we put them into one room and my partner sat with them. And essentially we sat in the dark and we waited and... And I was, I had my, my Glock out and I thought, you know what, if he comes crashing through any one of these windows or doors, he's either going to get me or I'm going to have to kill someone tonight. And yeah, it's not a good thought. Not a good thought. I was hiding behind like a a bar um, that they had in the corner at the time. And so uh, it was a really long wait for backup. (laughs) Immediate backup, if you're working in Hobart or Launceston, is two to three minutes. Immediate mm-hmm. backup here is is probably blue lighting, flat out half an hour. Yeah, and uh, along those roads at night time, you, you're also thinking about animal strikes. It's it's really dark out there. You're literally in the middle of nowhere. Um, so even if they wanted to go at full speed, they're not going to be. But we made it. We made it clear it was quite urgent. Um, you could hear footsteps, you could hear the gravel crunching. And so I'm, I'm trying to work out (laughs) which direction he was and trying to keep up with him. I could hear, you know, the odd crash a bit further off up into the bush. And then at one point, whether it was an animal, whether it was him, it sounded like an animal growling and, you know, you're so hyped up at that point in time, growling like an animal near the front door. And so it was... It felt like everything was closing in and it was it was going to happen any second. I was either going to die or, yes, have to use my firearm. These situations in the police event, as you quite rightly say, you know, when you're coming face to face with your own mortality, which is sort of what we're talking about here, um, they often happen in a heartbeat, don't they? And they're over very quickly after that. This is yeah. unique in so much as you're sitting in that headspace for for 30 minutes and it's um I just can't imagine what that would be like to have that hanging over your head for that for that length of time goodness me and I guess coupled with the relief of explain if you would your awareness of that backup arriving did were they coming in guns blazing or did they come in fairly covertly how did that work 
Uh, so my partner had them on the phone and he was relaying that back to me. They were, you know, they were 12 minutes away. They were 10 minutes away. They were seven minutes away. And the plan that they had devised, they'd looked at the property, they'd looked at the route as they were coming out. They were, um, the plan was to sweep down the driveway. We'd see the headlights. There were two cars. We were to come straight out the front door. First car would be the parents and the dogs gone. Second car would be my partner and I gone. So it was to be a quick pickup and we were out of there. Um, so that was, I suppose that was also going on during those 30 minutes and formulating that plan. Um, so we knew what was going to happen or what was supposed to happen and we were planning for that. So you're also trying to keep the parents calm at that point in time. And, um, you know, I don't, no, there's there's also that feeling I don't want to be over-dramatising this to the parents. I'm trying to remain calm, but at the at the same end of things, you could see how this could play out, worst-case scenario. Mm. And you get out of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd slashed the tyres of the police car. He had, yeah. Also set up um, punji traps, which um, it, it's sort of, we're back in the sort of Vietnam War era here. These are sharpened spikes that are put in sort of holes. Um, mm. So you're running up the driveway and he's he's set a number of these in the driveway. Is that correct? Mm, that's right. They, they found those the next day and also realised that he had used a number of his... Um, his arrows from his crossbow. So whether he was um, shooting at us as we were leaving, I don't know. I was just getting in that car mm. and I was going up the hill and like at the top of the hill, I got out of the car and I vomited in the, on the side of the road. I was mm. so unwell. I just, the stress, the nerves, just mm. everything was, yeah, everything was bad, but I was so pleased that we got out. But like it's, you live with that thought of also, it could have been everything, but maybe it was nothing. But then when they, when they went in the next day and they found him and they found the traps and they found the slash tires, it's like, well, okay. Mm. It was, it was probably erring on the side of being bad. This was a bit of a tipping point for you with regards to your career in the police and possibly even your, um, if I could put it this way, your, your attitude towards policing, what it meant to you, um, can you explain the, the impact that this incident had on you and perhaps your decision to retire from the police, even though that was a couple of years later? It was it was this incident that planted a, a bit of a foundation around that, I think. Yeah, absolutely, Brent. It um, I came away from that thinking all of those thoughts that I'd been thinking in the, in the middle of the dark, in the middle of nowhere. Um, I don't love policing. Uh, I There are... <laughs> Look, there are lots of great things about it. For several different reasons at that point in time, I did not love policing. Um, I didn't love the justice system. I was grumpy with the department about a couple of other things. So um, my overriding thought was, do I want to die or be injured again doing this? And, you know, there'd been a few injuries in the in the past, obviously, like everyone else, you know, the the, you know, I've been punched a few times and head butted mm. and, um, mm. just the usual sorts of things that you <laughs> put up with in the night, nightclub precinct on a Friday and Saturday night, you, um, as, as much as you try and avoid it, it does happen. And, um, it, it all became too much. And I did think, do I want to die for this? No, actually I don't. I'm sure that there are, um, there are other things I could do, but at that point in time, um, 
it was a good, solid job. And I'd been brought up in a household that told you that you got a job and you stayed with it for life and it was you looked for the best in that job. And so at that point in time, I decided to go non-operational. Um, so I applied for a position down in the radio room myself and um, I think as I've said many times, probably spent the next couple of years taking way too much information from callers so, so I could give my constables going to these jobs as much information as I possibly could. Um, and I actually really enjoyed that. It, it was a good time. Um, but I did also enjoy not being out there uh, in the thick of it. Well, you certainly haven't let the uh, the grass grow your feet since leaving the job. Um, and this is not an exhaustive list. You began a PhD in Tudor history. You wrote two crime fiction books. Uh, you had a child along the way as well uh, yep. because you weren't busy enough, obviously. Moved to Singapore, <laughs> got a psychology degree, back to Australia during COVID um, into uh, 2020. Even had a crack at nursing, I think, at one point and, um, and, a, and, a, and a very and a very storied career in aged care that lasted for half a dozen shifts. Is that, is that correct? <laughs> That's correct. I'm also, unfortunately, one of those people who, you know what, if it's not working for you, realise it and nip it in the bud. And uh, yeah, I'm currently actually writing um, another book because I'm over my baby brain now. I claimed that for 10 years, but I don't think I can get away <laughs> with it anymore. So I've started writing again about my disastrous year in healthcare. Uh, which is, yes, quite amusing, but uh, also not totally not for me. So I was the last person on earth who should have attempted to become a nurse. Mm. And I, I love the quote from a, an interview I listened to recently, uh, Yvette, where you said that you're still trying to work out what you want to do when you grow up. Oh, sad, isn't it? <laughs> I, mean, I, I really envy those people, Brent, who know what they want to do. And I've recently had these conversations with my daughter um, about, you know, just find that passion and we'll support you and we'll work out how that translates into a, an actual job and find that. And I think, unfortunately, I came from a background which didn't really have that um, those support. I can remember telling my mum at one stage I wanted to be an actress. I was probably 14 or something. And, and I think she laughed at me saying, get used to waiting on tables. So, you know, that's kind of what we're dealing with. Um, yeah, love it. Yeah, loved it a bit. But um, yeah, in terms of uh, never really knowing. Um, so I suppose that's why I've tried so many things. And, and it, it does get a little depressing at times, particularly when you turn the big five O and you still haven't worked out what you want to do when you grow up. But um, I, I think my dream job is writing. I'm a massive introvert. I love sitting in my office and just putting together words. Um, but unfortunately, I might have to keep going out into the real world and um, experiencing these things in order to write about them. So. <laughs> Thank you so very much for taking the time to join us here today for a chat. Uh, thanks also for your honesty and your candour reflecting uh, on your time serving the good people of Tasmania. And uh, I just wanted to wish you all the very best in your current and, and future post-police pursuits. And most sincerely, the thank you so very much for your service. And, uh, and thanks, thanks for having a chat to us. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly.